The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. So I'd like you to turn in your Bibles to the epistle of 2 Peter chapter 1. And we are looking at the first ten verses in this chapter in which the Apostle Peter is encouraging his readers to pursue Christ in a deeper faith. Uh, the recipients of this letter are Jews of the dispersion. I explained that uh, some time ago. But uh, it is to the Jews of the dispersion. But the principles that we learn in this, in this passage are, are really good for every believer in every age. And this is especially important for Christians in times of persecution because in those times it is when faith is severely tested and if a person is not firmly grounded in the principles of God's word, they can very quickly lose the assurance of their salvation. And when Christians are weak in the faith, they lose their hope, they lose their confidence and that's when they become ineffective for the cause of Christ. Now, the key element in this particular section would be what we read here in verse number 1 that the Apostle Peter calls like precious faith. Faith is important for a Christian because faith not only saves us, but faith also sustains us. Now, we, we've been taught uh, many times, you should know, that it's not faith itself that does either of those things, but it is the object of our faith. And the object of faith is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He is the anchor of our soul, both sure and steadfast. All of our confidence is in Him. And the more that we know Him, the more we learn about Him, the deeper that our faith becomes. So weak faith is not the loss of some intangible, ethereal hope that we have, but a weak faith is really lack of confidence in the power and the ability of God. Now, we look at this passage then and... We'll talk about things that we want to concentrate in just a moment. But verse number 1, 2 uh, Peter chapter 1, verse number 1, Simon Peter, a servant and an apostle of Jesus Christ, to them that have obtained like precious faith with us through the righteousness of God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Grace and peace be multiplied unto you through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. According as his divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness through the knowledge of him that hath called us to glory and virtue, whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises that by these ye might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. And beside this, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, and to virtue knowledge, and to knowledge temperance, and to temperance patience, and to patience godliness, and to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness charity. For if these things be in you and abound, they make that ye shall neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But he that lacketh these things is blind, and cannot see afar off, and hath forgotten that he was purged from his old sins." Wherefore, the rather brethren, give diligence to make your calling and election sure. For if ye do these things, ye shall never fall. Now the point of the first part of our lesson 
is to discuss the seven graces that are found in verses 5 through 7. Paul would have called these the fruit of the Spirit. But Peter really doesn't uh, give a name to these other than just calling them these things. That's what he says in both verses 8 and 10. He says these things. And when these things are in the life of a Christian, they are indicators of growth. That's the first point of our lesson that we've been studying, the indicators of growth. And we can liken our spiritual growth to the psalmist's description of a healthy tree in Psalm chapter 1, where he says, And he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that bringeth forth his fruit in his season. His leaf also shall not wither, and whatsoever he doeth shall prosper. So the tree planted by the water receives its life-sustaining force. It grows, its leaves bud out, and then next will come the fruit of that tree, abundant fruit. And so you look at this tree and you see the strong trunk, you see the green leaves, you see the good fruit, and that is evidence that there is a life force within. And that very same thing is true of a Christian. The river here can be likened to the Holy Spirit who through the water of the Word nourishes the uh, Christian graces flow from the Holy Spirit, and those graces nourish us. Now, in the Word of God is the knowledge of Christ, and the knowledge of Christ is our actual spiritual food. And every Christian has the potential of producing these fruits. Uh, we're capable because there is no Christian, not a one that's ever been born again, that did not have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in him. God has given us the ability to produce fruit for him. Now, we, we, uh, with our justification also comes our sanctification. Those two things are never separated. They are separate doctrines, but you can't have a person who's been justified by faith in Christ who is not also sanctified. And so if a person never shows any sort of growth, then he doesn't have any valid claim that he's truly been justified. So the fruits then of the Spirit are, are evident, they are in us by the seed of faith, and that seed of faith has to be watered by submission to the Holy Spirit, and when that happens, that's when God gives the increase. Our sanctification is an ongoing process that is empowered by God, but we also need to be very much aware of this. Although God is active in the believer, a person, the person himself, the commitment of the believer is absolutely necessary also to, to this process. Now, in the previous messages, we've, we've already talked about five of the seven graces. Those are virtue, knowledge, temperance, patience, and godliness. And to each of those, I, I've just given them a, a description, uh, maybe not so clever in some cases, but it describes what these graces are. We talked about virtue, and I'll be very brief with these since we've already discussed these five, but we talked about virtue, which means to choose right over wrong. It's the steadfast determination that the Christian has that he's going to do what's right, that he's going to choose the right, right way to go, no matter how much opposition is against him, no matter how great the temptations that come upon him. Virtue reflects that we have a faith, a, a desire for the superior power to control us, and through the operation of Christ in us by the Holy Spirit, we are able to obey Christ. Virtue pursues Christ, always pursuing Christ. Next is knowledge. Knowledge is learn how to live. Knowledge is the understanding of the virtuous life and what that is. And this, of course, would be knowledge of the Scripture, 
because the scriptures are the only place that we can learn what God expects of us. And then the third grace in the passage is temperance. And temperance means to stop before you sin. Temperance means self-control. Paul wrote in 1 Thessalonians 4, Furthermore, then, we beseech you, brethren, and exhort you by the Lord Jesus, that as ye have received of us how ye ought to walk and to please God, so ye would abound more and more. For ye know what commandments we gave you by the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, even your sanctification, that ye should abstain from fornication, that every one of you should know how to possess his vessel in sanctification and honor. I looked at that verse and I thought, well, maybe a good title for this particular section would have been Possess Your Vessel. And although there are people that argue about the exact meaning of what what does vessel mean there in 1 Thessalonians, uh, I, I think that the vessel here refers to your body. That your body houses your soul and your body belongs to the God, your soul belongs to God. And so 1 Corinthians tells us that the body is the temple of the Holy Spirit And that means that we are to regard the Holy Spirit living in us. We have His temple. That's our body. And so we are to deny ourselves all of our fleshly instincts, all of our fleshly lust, and just turn away from that. And we grow in Christ when we do this, when our vessel, our body, is purged of sin. That's the only time that we're going to be fit to be used in God's service. Then the next grace was patience. And this one we described as take a licking, but keep on ticking. Patience means steadfast endurance. It means to persevere. Now, perseverance is actually the grand mark of the faith. Uh, that's an interesting statement that's made in our, in our statement of faith on this particular doctrine, that perseverance is the grand mark of God's people. It's a grand mark of the faith. In fact, God requires this from his people. Jesus said... He that endureth unto the end shall be saved. Well, only the regenerate can continue unto the end, endure and hold out faithful. Only a child of God can do that. We endure hardness of Christian living, the difficult things in our life, by the enabling power of God. So perseverance is required. You have to labor at it all the time, knowing that you're never going to be able to accomplish it on your own without the enabling power of the indwelling spirit. Then next, we looked at godliness. And godliness means to act like the Almighty. It means to be Christ-like. And that is actually the real fabric of the fruit of the Spirit. It's to be like Christ, who lives soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. Now, every time that you sin, no matter what that sin is, you need to ask yourself, before you ever enter into a sin... You need to ask yourself, is this what Jesus would do? Now, I know that that, uh, that little phraseology, WWJD, that's, that's really an old, tired cliche, but it doesn't make it any less valid of a test to determine the choices that you make. Now, WWJD is a fad that very quickly faded from the scene. I mean, it went away almost as quickly as it came because there are, 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 not, there are not very many people that can actually continue to do what Jesus did. That takes a certain class of people. And so there were many people who had really no notion of who Christ is. They strapped on their bracelets and they said, we're going to do what Jesus did. But they didn't even know Jesus. They weren't able to make the right choices. They couldn't continue to do that. And so the excuse becomes then for people who can't do it is, oh, we're human. 
We're human, and that's why we can't do this. We can't always do what Christ did. But we have to be reminded that Christ was also human, that Christ modeled what human life should be. Christ had the Spirit in him. And the Scripture says he had the Spirit without measure. Will it surprise you to find out? I hope not, that you have the Spirit in you as well. And you also have the Spirit in this sense without measure. That is, when you got saved, you got all the Holy Spirit that you're ever going to get. There isn't any more Holy Spirit to get. You got Him all. But the difference between Christ and the Christian is the amount of submission that we give to the Holy Spirit. Now, Christ gave full submission. All that He was, He gave to the leadership of the Holy Spirit. But we're still learning how to do that. We're stuck in our learning curve, hindered by sin... And we do need to remember that it's not an excuse for us because there is no sin that is too big for God to handle. In fact, the fourth verse of this text says that we have been made partakers of the divine nature. And that nature can't produce anything but godliness. It can't produce anything but that. And so for the Christian to live out of that nature and not according to the sinful nature gives him the ability to do what Christ did. Now, that old nature is going to be with us. It's going to be with us as long as we live. It'll be here till we reach a state of glorification in heaven. And so we've got to learn how to live out of the divine nature, the new nature implanted by the Holy Spirit. Now, as we move along in the text, we're ready to begin discussion of the sixth grace. And beside this, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, and to virtue knowledge, and to knowledge temperance, and to temperance patience, and to patience, godliness, and to godliness, brotherly kindness. So to godliness must be added brotherly kindness. Now here's my description of that. What is brotherly kindness? It means to be easy with everybody. Let me give you this uh, text verse to get us started. Galatians 6, verse number 1. Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual... Restore such an one in the spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. Now you see there the spirit of meekness. That is an attitude that causes gentleness. It causes forbearance with the faults of others. It also enables you to see your own faults and shows you that you don't really have any cause to treat other people unkindly. Now we'll explore this a little bit further in a minute. But I want you to keep in mind what Christ, uh, what uh, rather, uh, what Christ did for for you after all the uh, all after all the terrible things that you did to Him. Consider that. What what did Christ do for you after what you've done to Him? And if you consider that and think think about it all the time, then the same kind of kindness that has been shown to you, you'll show to others. Now, here's something that I think maybe uh, we should notice about all these preceding graces before we get to brotherly kindness, we have to think about who is the beneficiary? Who who benefits from all of these graces? Well, we're talking about your virtue, and this is your knowledge, this is your self-control, this is your patience, and it's your godliness. And it is possible for those things to benefit others, but the primary beneficiary of those five graces is you because those are things that bring you into a closer relationship with Christ. And so I think that those five graces are, would correspond to the first uh, great commandment that God gave us, that we are to love God with our heart, our soul, and our mind, to give Him all of that, 
And these five graces are there to help us to conform to that commandment that we would give Christ all the love, love Him with everything that there is in us, and developing these graces helps us to do that. But we come to these last two, and, and I believe that the emphasis here switches to the second great commandment, which is that we are to love our neighbor as ourselves. And so now, it's the other person who becomes the greatest beneficiary of these graces. Now, there isn't a, a real Christian who doesn't express some concern, or should be a lot of concern for others. There isn't any real Christ-likeness until the second great commandment is operating in your life. Now, according uh, to the teachings of Scripture, you can't have the first. I mean, Scripture says this, you can't have the first. You can't love God if you don't love your fellow man. You can't be in the development of the second first without being in the development of the second. And, I, and that actually fits the model that I've tried to describe for you, that these graces are all interdependent. You can't have one without the other. And that's because this is the way that Christ was. He couldn't love his father without also loving those that his father loved. His obedience to the father in the kenosis of Philippians chapter 2 was because of this very thing. In fact, Paul began that section of scripture in Philippians 2 this way. He said, let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Now there you see, in lowliness of mind, that would correspond to meekness. In meekness, we could say, let each esteem other better than themselves. And from there, Paul went on to describe the mind of Christ, and that's what caused him, this kind of an attitude is what caused him to step down from his throne and to go to the cross to die for us. Now, if you consider what we have done, is there anybody that can say that we get what we deserve? Can any of us say that God gives us what we deserve? It's, this is what we deserve. We deserve hell. We don't deserve anything better than hell. It's strange to me that there are people who conclude that we should get something better. That, that we, God is responsible to give us something better. And they'll say things like, well, God's not fair if, if God saves some, but he doesn't save all. And God should choose. It's wrong for God to choose some and not to choose all. But does God's choice to give grace to one over another cause his justice to be deficient? That's an impossible thing. No one deserves mercy and grace. No one deserves that from God. Grace can't be deserved. And so thus, God doesn't owe anyone, not anyone in the world, an opportunity to be saved. And the psalmist expressed wonder at the marvelous grace of God when he said, He hath not dealt with us after our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. God has not dealt with us according to our sins. If he did, there wouldn't be any of us here tonight. There wouldn't be a Christian here tonight. And then neither would there be a lost person that experienced any of God's common grace, that that is to have just another breath to breathe. Now, God is benevolent. He's always benevolent. No matter what side of that question you come down on, God is benevolent. And Christ showed brotherly kindness to us. And he showed us by stepping down from the throne to die. You know, whenever I think about that, I, I think of uh, the last few verses 
or the last few chapters that we've studied in the book of Matthew, that after the disciples uh, forsook Christ and fled, they deserted him uh, at his trial. They wouldn't stand with him there and be with him there at the cross. Uh, Nobody even showed up to claim his body. And yet when he arose from the grave, he called them my brethren. That's amazing love. He did that for others. And to be like Christ, our focus also has to be others. Ephesians 4.32 says, And be ye kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. So we are to be kind, be forgiving. Do as Paul said in Galatians 6 verse 2, Bear ye one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. And again, you think about the great burden that Christ bore. He suffered the reproach of sinners against him. He took our sins upon him. Uh, He experienced the greatest grief that anyone could ever experience because as he died for our sins, he was separated from his father. And it wasn't until every one of those sins were paid for with his suffering that he was in the uh, back with his father again. Now, the important point here is that others receive the benefits of Christ working in your life. And so if you are a person who sits here with a grudge against other members in the church, you have defriended half of the congregation because of your spats and your jealousies, then you are an immature Christian. This is what Peter's discussing with us here. How does it, what does it take to be a mature Christian? Well, an immature one is one who has all these different things that are going on. They, they have all these arguments with other Christians. They can't get along with them. And if you're that kind of person, then you have just branded yourself with a tattoo that says immature. Now, what we really need to do is to catch on to the teachings of this passage that to fail in one of these spiritual graces is to bring all other things down with it. So you can't deal with brotherly kindness on its own and say, well, I don't really have to have that. You can't just leave that alone and not do something with it because if you fail in that, you're going to fail in everything that's here. Virtue is gone without brotherly kindness. Knowledge of Christ is gone without brotherly kindness. Temperance disappears when you can't control your contempt for other Christians. And you can just go right down the list of all these graces. If you fail in one, then you bring the others down with it. One affects them all. And I hope that you understand why. Because we're talking about what is in Jesus Christ. In our uh, Wednesday night services on fundamentals of the faith, when we were discussing fruits of the Spirit, this is one of the points that we brought out. What is the fruit of the Spirit? Well, the fruit of the Spirit is Christ-likeness. It's not just the list of things that we have there. It's Christ-likeness itself. This is what Christ is. And that's what you have to understand when you see fruits of the Spirit. This is development of what Christ is. And so, how could Christ be any of the things that we say that He is if He fails in this command Himself? If He fails in the command for brotherly kindness, then He fails in all the commands that He ever gave. You know, it's sort of like looking at James 2, chapter 10, where it says, For whosoever shall keep the whole law, and yet offend in one point, he is guilty of all. Now, could you imagine that Jesus would have a Facebook page where he keeps a a list of refused friend requests from the church members? Now, I, I don't think that Jesus 
would be a part of that impersonal time waster to begin with. That's just my opinion. But uh, did you know that I actually can see Jesus with pages and pages of denied friend requests? You say, how? How is that possible? Well, because he, the Bible teaches us that if you're going to be friends with the world, you can't be friends with Jesus. And so if you're friends with him and you say, will you be friends with me? He says, request denied. Stamps you with the big rubber stamp. Request denied. You can't be friends of the world and be friends with Jesus. But what he won't do, what he never will do, is when a church member says, can I be friends with Jesus? He never refuses that person. Not a person who's a true born-again believer. And that's because Christ is always forgiving. No matter what you've done to him, no matter how bad it is, no matter how many times you fail him, he's not going to fail you. He's always going to be forgiving of your sin. And so if you're the kind of person who has your petty grudges and you have all these offenses that are piled up on you and, uh, and you won't give up on those and you're harboring those in your heart, then you need to think about how much has Christ forgiven me of? How much sin did I have against him? How much is piled up against him? And yet he forgave those things. I mean, could you seriously put up all your grievances that you have and put them on par with the transgressions that you have made against the laws of the holy God of this universe? And so the question has to be here. He forgave you and you won't forgive others? Well, that doesn't work. Now notice again this description of brotherly kindness or of kindness. It is brotherly kindness. And brotherly is a word that means of the same womb. The word actually means of the same womb. So Christian, Christians are people that are born of the same womb. That is, we've been born by the Spirit of God or we've been born from above. We are born into the same family. That is the family of God. Now a few weeks ago I was speaking on the verse in 2 Timothy chapter 2, where it said that in the last days, that people would be characterized by having a feelings like, or have the feeling of without natural affection. That's the word that's used there, the words that are used, without natural affection. And that means that these times are going to be characterized by the breakdown of family relationships. There'll be the seed of divorce that can be found in that, disrespect by children for their parents is there, and then, of course, there would be abortion that's in that where uh, it's unnatural for a mother to want to kill her own children. That, that very kind of thing is spoken of right there in 2 Timothy 2. Now, could you imagine that those kinds of things would exist in God's family? They, they don't exist there because God has this supernatural affection for those that belong to him. And the relationship between us and him is never diminished even though we should fail him. Now, God expects that he's going to have a tight-knit family. And so he insists that all of us get along with each other, that we support each other. And so he tells us in these scriptures that when a brother falls, you don't step on him, you don't push him down, you don't, you don't do that because God wouldn't do that. And so it says that we are to restore an offending brother in the spirit of meekness. This is very simply just be easy with everybody. Now, primarily, it's speaking of the treatment that you have for your brothers and sisters in Christ. And if you can't be good to those who have like precious faith with you, then who could you possibly be friends with? I mean, this is what we're supposed to do. Uh, we are to support one another. So don't be quick to jump on somebody 
that's in God's family who's fallen. Don't be quick to stomp on them because they've been caught with some kind of a sin in their life. Don't jump on them because of that and just cast them out. Rather, what we're to do is try to restore that person. Give them the love of God. Show them brotherly kindness. Because this is what Christ did. He had every motive and still does have every motive to forsake you, but he never will. Now, we need to go on then to consider the seventh grace. As I spoke this morning, seven is a number of completion in Scripture. I, I couldn't tell you that the Apostle Peter purposely designed this, or the Holy Spirit designed this, so we would end up with seven graces. I, I can't actually say that. But I do know this, that we are not going to be complete until we do have this seventh grace that's mentioned in the passage. Verse number seven says, To brotherly kindness we are to add charity. To add charity. Now, our statement is, charity is your choice. And I want to be careful how you read that statement. It doesn't mean that it's okay if you do or you do not choose charity. Or that you can be a child of God if you choose against charity. Now, you understand that charity means love. And for a true born-again believer, love is the choice that you make. Charity is your choice. So what I mean by that, charity is the choice you will make. If you are a born-again believer, this is what you're going to do. So love is not an optional thing for believers. It's the choice that you make. You will make this choice if you are a Christian, and if you don't, then you can't claim to be related to Christ. Certainly, we say a mature Christian is going to make this choice. Now, here, here's what happens to us. When, when we first get saved... We don't really understand very much about love. I mean, the world has its idea of love, but Christian love is a very much different thing. And so we don't really have too much of an idea of what this love is. So our love at first is very meager, but we do have a desire for it. We want it. Uh, when we learn Christ better, we begin to increase our love for him. And as we do that, we increase our love for each other. Well, it's a very simple principle. It's easy for us to figure out what it is, but it's very, very difficult for us to do without constant attention. A Christian is always going to choose to love because that's what God gave us in the divine nature when he saved us. Now, the family resemblance between God and Christ means that what one of them did is also done by the other. Now, with that in mind, I, I want us to think of, about this thought again, going back to Matthew 22, verses 36 uh, through 40, where Jesus was asked a question about the great commandment. And uh, this, this person comes to him. We discussed a little bit in Sunday school this morning. Master, which is the great commandment in the law? Jesus said unto him, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is likened to it, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Well, there we see the first commandment is about love. The second commandment is about love. And he says that all commandments, all the law and the prophets, hang on this command to love. So love becomes the hinge point for every part of God's law. It's love God and love your fellow man, and those are two things that are never going to be separated. 
And when Peter said that we are to add love to our faith, he couldn't have been thinking of anything other than this. This is what Christian love is. He's not only speaking about loving God. That's certainly an important part, a, a necessary. You can't do without it. But as he's speaking of that, he also has to be talking about love for your fellow man. That can't be split away from the first great commandment. So both of those have to be present in order for sanctification to deepen, and it will deepen when both of them are present and we're working on them. And so our love for God deepens. Uh, You see his providential care. I mean, when you're learning Christ, when you get saved and you're learning what God has done for you, you see the providential care that God provides for your life. You see how that God is forgiving in all of your failures. And then you also appreciate something else that at first might seem a very uh, a bit strange to you, and that is that you also appreciate the chastisement of God. I mean, you will really learn to appreciate when God comes and cracks his whip and brings you back where you're supposed to be because he shows you this is what's going to happen or needs to happen in order to bring you back into the place of my greatest blessings. So you learn to respect God for that, and you love God for that, because as a parent, he brings you back through that chastisement. So what you're doing here is no matter what it is, as you're trying to live your life for Christ, the daily life for him is teaching you all the time to love Christ in a deeper way. And then the second aspect of love develops with that. It has to develop with that. Now, if you would, turn to 1 John chapter 4, and uh, the Apostle John makes the second aspect of this very prominent in this epistle. Uh, His little letter here is about assurance, and he focused mostly on the last grace here that Peter speaks to us of in 2 Peter chapter 1. So he's primarily focusing on love in 1 John. And so in 1 John chapter 4, he shows us that you can be assured that your faith is real by examining the treatment that you have of others. So he says in verse 20, If a man say, I love God, and hateth his brother, he is a liar. For he that loveth not his brother whom he hath seen, how can he love God whom he hath not seen? And this commandment have we from him, that he who loveth God love his brother also. Now John's language is very strong here. It's forceful. He says, If you say that you love God and you hate your brother... You, sir, are a liar. Now, the modern church is not used to that kind of language. We don't hear those kinds of things in church. John used that kind of language. The apostles used this language. Jesus, when dealing with the heresies of of scribes and Pharisees, used very, very stern language. Well, we find here that the language is very strong because the error is very deep. If all the law and the prophets hang on these two commands, then you can well imagine that a mistake here is devastating. God does not tolerate this. God does not tolerate this kind of error. God is never inconsistent with himself. So he can never issue a command that says, you are to love me, without the same time issuing a command that says, you are to love your brother also. You can't separate these two things. And you might talk about how much you love God, and uh, you you might uh, have your list of things that you did that showed God that you loved Him. But if you leave this out, God says, I want nothing to do with you. You don't love me because you don't love your brother. And we have to be very careful to recognize that. So you see here then 
that the command is given. And this commandment we have from him, that he who loveth God, love his brother also. William Hendrickson wrote, Love for God cannot remain a warm feeling in our hearts that moves vertically to heaven, but horizontally fails to reach our fellow man. Genuine love for God and for our neighbor extends both ways. And so the inevitable conclusion here is it would be an impossible contradiction to be filled with God's love and not love those that God loves. Now God's love actually becomes tangible and recognizable when it expresses itself in us by our love to others. Oh, you really have to read the whole epistle of 1 John to see how John develops this argument. You might just look up to verse 7 for a minute there in the fourth chapter. He said, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God. And everyone that loveth is born of God, and knoweth God. He that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is love. And this was manifested, the love of God toward us, because that God sent his only begotten Son into the world that we might live through him. Herein is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be a propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. Well, how do we handle these kinds of statements? The basis for our love of each other is the love of God in providing Christ as a satisfaction for our sin. I mean, that's the word propitiation that you see in verse number 10. That's the definition of God's love. He gave himself for us. So how do you handle that? Are you mature in this? Uh, do you love others? Is your love deepening? Is it deepening? Or is it, I guess I have to say, like this side over here with the cold hearts. I mean, <laughs> is that what the problem is? Is your love cold and stagnant and self-absorbed? Well, immature Christians are selfish. All of us have been there at one time. We were before we were saved. We were all selfish. And selfishness is the thing that has to go. It has to go before you can develop spiritual graces. Now, as you grow in Christ, the uh, self will diminish and the spirit of Philippians 2 begins to show up. And that is not a spirit of self-esteem. It is a spirit of esteeming others better than you. This is what it says again in that third verse of chapter 2. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem other better than themselves. Now, I was thinking about this and I said, well, how, what is another illustration to show what, what could Peter, John, Jesus, and all of them be thinking about when... They talk about this kind of love. Is there another way that it can be expressed? Well, I think that we find it also in the relationship between husband and wife. Now, I don't necessarily want to talk about that particular relationship, but there's some things that are said in Ephesians chapter 5 that give us a pretty good idea, greater understanding of what kind of love that he's talking about, how great that this love must be. And so in Ephesians chapter 5, uh, the Apostle Paul has under consideration, first of all, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, and he's making points about that. But he says something about marriage, and he says that no man ever hated his own flesh, but loveth it, or loveth and cherisheth it. Now, when he talks about his own flesh, a man's own flesh, he would, of course, be talking about a husband and wife who have been made one flesh. That happens in the union of marriage. So it makes no sense in Paul's argument that a husband would mistreat his wife. 
because he's dealing with his own flesh. He's not going to hurt himself. And so he says, you're, you're not going to do this. You're not going to hate your own flesh. And so he compares that uh, to the husband and the wife. He honors his wife because she is the same as his body. But the point that I want to draw out of this is that a person, just this, a person never hates his own flesh. That's always going to be true. You never hate your own flesh. We all love ourselves. And to some extent, that's good because we've been created in the image of God. I mean, there has to be some self-love there. That, that's what keeps you from walking out in the middle of the street and say, well, I don't care if a car runs over me. You're not going to do that because you love yourself. You're not going to do that. And so uh, we've been created in the image of God. So what we're going to do is treat ourselves well. We always do that. We pamper ourselves. We treat ourselves well. Now, of course, the Bible teaches that we are to temper that with our love for, each, uh, love for other people. But we love ourselves. And so looking at Philippians chapter 2 and verse number 3, there couldn't be any question about this, that a person who esteems other better, others better than himself must care for them a lot. You understand what I'm getting to? He must really love them a lot. If Paul said, esteem others better than yourself, and you think about, well, self is the thing I love the most. If you esteem others better than yourself, what does that say about the love that God expects for us to have for others? That's pretty big. That's pretty impressive that he says. And so I think it makes sense to us that the command here is a very, very special command. It's a very... Um, important thing for us to do, to love our fellow man. We, we don't diminish that, thinking that, well, love for God, that's the thing. Love for God, that's the thing. That's where we concentrate, because God says love for your fellow man is also loving me. Love somebody better than yourself, that's also loving me. So Philippians 2, verse 4 and 5, Paul says this kind of love is the love of Christ. It's the mind of Christ. So he says, look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. And those next verses tell us what that love led Jesus to do. And that's the condescension of the cross. So as we look at this, what happens is that um, the Christian graces culminate in the highest standard of our faith. And that highest standard is to have the mind of Christ. That's where we're headed, to have the mind of Christ. And the point here is that our sanctification is headed there to be like Christ, who is the embodiment of all the, the righteousness of the law and the prophets, and to be like Christ is to love God and to love others. And when we meet that standard, when we meet the standard of loving Christ and loving others, then we're going to meet all other standards. All other standards will be met. We will have virtue and knowledge and temperance and patience and godliness, brotherly kindness. All of those things are characteristics of Christ, and that's the point that Peter is driving home in the beginning of chapter 2. Now, when your tree grows from this seed of faith, Christian graces have to be produced. This tree produces no other thing than the fruit of the Spirit. Well, we have to ask, how many fruits can it produce? How, how many fruits can this tree produce? Well, it varies according to your submission. Jesus had all of these things, all the fruit that we talk about in their fullest of abundance. And Christians produce these fruit according to their maturity. I mean, that's the subject of our study here, living 
by maturing, and you're going to produce fruit according to your maturity. This is how Jesus describes it in Matthew 13. But he that received seed into the good ground is he that heareth the word and understandeth it, which also beareth fruit and bringeth forth some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. Now that's one of those verses that very, very often is taught wrongly. Um, we, I mean, this is a, usually many times is used as a soul-winning verse that the fruit of the, that it's talking about here is um, the number of souls that you win. Some win a hundred souls or, you know, comparisons to this. Some win a hundred, some win 60, some win 30, and so on. But this is not talking about soul-winning here. I mean, soul-winning is a very important thing, but that's not what this is talking about. This is talking about how much fruit do you produce in your life for the Lord Jesus Christ by becoming more like him? That's the fruit that he's speaking of here. So how do you get the variations? Well, where, do, where does a hundredfold come from? Where does 60 come from? Why does some have 30? Well, all of the fruit that's produced by the Spirit is all of the same quality. All of it's the same quality. The problem is it's not the same quantity. The quantity is according to your maturity. How much that you produce will determine, is determined by how mature that you are in the faith. And Peter's point here, I think, is that what we need to do is to strive to get to the place where what we produce is the 100-fold. And in this picture, that's the pinnacle. That, that's to be everything that Christ is. The 100-fold is to be everything that Christ is. And that's where we want to mature. That's the place that we want to get to. What is Christ? And to be like Him. And we're going to be, we will grow if we're careful to cultivate. And how much that you grow is dependent upon how much time you spend tending your crop. Understand? How much time are you going to spend tending your crop? How many weeds in your life are you willing to pull? How much, how many vices in your life are you willing to get rid of? How much loss are you willing to suffer for the cause of Christ? And when you get that figured out, then that will tell you whether you can be a Peter or a Paul. It'll tell you, can you be like the apostles? Can you be like these faithful men who followed God, who wrote these things that we're reading? How much you surrender the Spirit's going to tell you that. So how long and how hard will you work? Well, I'll take us back to a verse that we used in this morning's message. Ephesians 4.13 Till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man under the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. And you remember what I said this morning about the perfect man? Well, we know that we can't live a perfect life uh, we can't live without sin because of that sinful nature. But that perfect there means that we are complete in every phase of our lives, that everything is dedicated to God, surrendered to Him so He can use us the way that He wants to use us. And so Peter tells us, add these things to your faith. And if you have added these things, then you have the indicators of growth. This shows that you truly are a mature Christian. And I hope that's the desire for everyone here, to be mature in your knowledge, in your faith, in your work for the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we come to you thanking you for your word and for what we've learned tonight. Lord, I do pray that every one of us would have these indicators of growth, that we would work on these spiritual graces, that we would cultivate them in our lives through the power of the Holy Spirit. 
And Lord, as we think especially about the last two that we discussed tonight, brotherly kindness and love for one another, these are so important because that is actually the manifestation that you are in us. It's what we show outwardly to others that shows whether we really, whether we really have grasped what these scriptures are telling us to do. Lord, help us to learn this, to do this, to be very diligent about it, as Peter says. And we give you the praise for it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Ronert Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Ronert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.